Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts. Today, I am joined by a fellow Brit, Andrew Braben of Zero West, an independent watch company in the south of England who's doing very exciting things. Andrew, you've been on the show very briefly before in advance of the Red Bar South East event, and here we are again to give you your full hour to discuss exactly what it is you want to discuss about the brand. Welcome to the virtual studio. Hey, thanks for having me on the show, Rob. Really appreciate it. Great to be here. Great to have you back. And as promised, our listeners deserve a little bit more of a deeper insight into Zero West. So let's start where we started previously, just to give everyone a recap, because it's been a few months now. What were the origins of the brand and how did you yourself come to watchmaking? It's an interesting story. I've got a friend, Graham. He's the other half of Zero West. He's my business partner. And he's one of those irritating guys. He's an engineer, ex-military engineer, done a lot of work, black ops, aerospace, that sort of thing. Uh, in fact, actually, he's the worst person to meet. For He'll tell you a story. It'll be fascinating. And he'll get right to the punchline, almost the really juicy bit. And then, obviously, because he's signed loads of documents, he's not allowed to tell you anymore. But I'd always meet him at Christmas dues. We're both mad into watches. And, uh, I, and he'd always talk about wanting to design his own watch. And I never offered to help out because, he, like I said, he's really irritating. He could build his own house. He's, he's really good. Uh, all things like that. And and then one year, uh, he didn't come to the Christmas party and he sent me an email and uh, he sent me a 3D render of this beautiful watch. And he, he, he just put on the email, what do you think? You know, I've been having a, a play. I've spent a couple of days designing this. What do you think? And rather than emailing just back, uh, you know, my background's branding, graphics. I went to art college. I specialized in typography. And I thought, I, you know, I know what. I'm going to design him a dial, design him a logo, and I put it into his 3D render. And then I turned it into an advert. It was very Breitling-esque. It had a chrome biplane that flew around the 3D render of the watch. Uh, and I, I sent it back to him and I said, you know, your watch looks amazing. It could look like this uh, with no other thought of, you know, there you go, off you go sort of thing. And he just emailed back and said, do you want to set up a watch brand? And and it was a bit tongue in cheek. And we, we he came over to, you know, I worked for myself at that time. I was freelancing and I'd spent a lot of time working with with customers. I was very fortunate to have a lot of customers that I've worked with from a very small startup to to like a multinational. I'm very grateful. Learned a great deal over the years of working with ad agencies and stuff. And I just thought, oh, it'd be great to have my own product and and, I, and and put all the years of experience that I've learned into my passion of watches. And I knew Graham was massively passionate about watches. So we sat down and it, it became instantly clear that what he could bring to the table with all his engineering vendors and his years of aerospace engineering and his love of watches uh i couldn't do and what i could do uh like designing the website doing designing the dials the branding and all that sort of thing he he, he that wasn't his background uh, and and between the two of us we stood a chance of designing a watch and 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 so we set off on this kind of immediate road trip uh kind of what you know how could we design what would this watch look like what would the backstory be and 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 we soon developed a brand in fact i put together i put a proposal to him it took me forever in the evenings and weekends my wife nearly left me and it was like a 30 page document just outlining where the brand could go uh, the brand ethos our values and um and it really started from there but obviously we needed a name and you know that was another story altogether so that's really how it kind of came about it was massively exciting as it is today well, tell us that story about the name then, because it is an interesting name, and I can see that you've, I guess the logo is uh, a couple of integrated Zs and a W made to look like wings, unless I'm just seeing, reading too much into it, but to me, that's what it looks like. But where did it come from? Graham was massively into history and maps, and uh, he spent a lot of time up at Greenwich, and we were talking about names, and he said it would be great if we could uh, you know, connect the brand back to Greenwich in some way. And a big hero of his was uh, was Harrison with the H4 clock, and uh, finding longitude finding longitude at sea, and 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 he said, oh, you know, the, there's the prime meridian that goes through there, and we were scribbling down some names, and you know, zero zero degrees west uh, is is the prime meridian, it's where time starts, is where east meets west, and suddenly I was like looking at it, and I was going to go, hold on, zero west, there's four left from a typographical point of view, uh, there's there's two words. There's the, the four letters each. Uh, they're a nice uh, in terms of composite. There's no I in there, so negative space when you're doing typography. And and then we it kind of all slotted in together. We thought, hold on, we, we you know we want to champion British engineering achievements. Uh, why don't we 
zero degrees west, that'd be great. We can put a latitude and longitude and date code on every dial, and that will take you to a moment in time. We can research that moment in time, like the birth of the Spitfire land speed records, and then we can bring the design attributes of that dial, sorry, the design attributes of that story to the dial, and um, the marketing would, would be you know, really in-depth, and, and we would put a human element to that, and we would research the whole thing. And, and so you're not just buying a watch, you're, you're buying into a, a, a time, a story, a time and place. And there were lots, so many brands um, or so many stories out there that are kind of a bit surface for us, and we felt that we could uh, be more true. Uh, uh, and this was a, a really strong uh, branding part of our DNA. So that that's kind of where the name came from, and it served us served us really well. A lot of people ask us what zero degree zero west means, and 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 as soon as we kind of relay this story with the dial and time and place, uh, you know, you see people nodding in it and connecting the dots, uh, and it and it's become a really strong uh, part of our DNA, which has been exciting to uh, retail through our our individual watches. What kind of feedback have you received from your customers in regards to the reasons? for them buying the watches is it mostly product based or has the story had a huge impact on them and turned their heads towards the brand when they would otherwise not have been turned had it not been for that completely holistic approach to designing the watch and basing it around a time and place as well yeah i think that's a really interesting question and it's a question that we ask ourselves constantly as as we move forward and expand we're very uh, hands-on with our customers, so to speak, and we we kind of try and you know gleam a lot of information from everybody that we meet, whether it's remotely because we're predominantly an online brand, or those that come to our design studio. And I think that the, whilst the story is massively important for the majority of people, what often gets can be overlooked with our brand is the fact that you know Graham's designed a unique watch case or several unique watch cases that are unique to our brand, and that was massively important to us. I do like a slideshow that I, I present to art colleges, and recently I was at a Westin Horological Department uh, by invitation of the British Watching Clock Association to give a, call, uh, a talk all on branding uh, and how we started up our, our watch brand and the unique attributes of it. And this particular subject came up, and it, it's really interesting that people are looking uh, – we're, we're uh, the, the, when we set up one of our primary goals was to make the best watch that we could possibly make, and I'm sure an investor would cringe at some of the decisions that we've made. But they're things that are really important to myself and Graham, and we want people when they've spent a little bit of time with us to feel that we are a very viable alternative to maybe one of the big Swiss manufacturers. And whilst we don't produce mass market watches, the quality is definitely up there. So first and foremost for us, it was about creating a high quality product, uh, even at the expense of margin. Uh, and, I, and I'll come on to a great example of that to do with the strap shortly. But um, the story is an integral part of that. And so the lines are very blurred. Um, you know, a great example of one of the watches that we have is a Lancaster watch uh, that features material in it from Operation Chastise. And um, the, the, this happened, you know, obviously, to, to bomb the uh, the dams. And getting hold of that material was exceptionally difficult. I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on that one topic alone. We were very fortunate to acquire the material. But that really, that's just a great example of one of our theme watches that has captured the imagination. And we have people that, but the other day I had a phone call from somebody, I think they were in I don't know, Middlesbrough, and, 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 the, and the phone tripped through from the studio to my mobile. It was 8 o'clock at night. And he said, oh, uh, do you have one of these in stock? I know you normally build to order. And I said, actually, we do. We have a couple in the safe. And um, he said, if I came down early tomorrow morning, uh, you know, could I pick it up? And I, he was here at like 10 o'clock in the morning. I, mean, I don't know what time he got up. But that's just the sort of lengths that people go to. Uh, apparently, he was going away to pick up one of our watches. And we're very fortunate to have that sort of uh, passionate client base, should I say. And talking of those watches and the design, it certainly is unique. Do you ever find or maybe feel, if it hasn't manifested yet, that the design is too unique? And what I mean by that is watch customers tend to be relatively conservative in the pieces that they actually put their money behind. And these are not cheap watches. They're good value for the build quality, of course. And you're an independent brand that obviously needs at least some margin to maintain and hopefully grow. But I've noticed with some brands, when they start out, 
with an ambition to do something very different, they find eventually, often sooner than they'd like, that there's a ceiling to the interest in a product that is so far off the beaten track. Now, by the looks of things, things are going quite well for you. You have a dedicated client base. I believe you have customers who are repeat customers, which is a great thing for a smaller smaller brand. But do you have any concerns that further down the line, there will come a point where you've exhausted all of your potential customers and you maybe need to do something a little bit more mainstream? Does that ever pop up in conversation? That's a great question. It's something we talk about. I think what's really important for us is brand identity and not being a me too brand. Uh, I think it's in, I'd rather produce something that was uh, unique to us uh, and sell in small numbers than, than, than water that down. And, and, and a really, we're, we're on a design process at the moment. Uh, Graham is predominantly, he's working on a new watch. He's been working on it for probably on and off for about a year. And we've done a massive amount of research into other watches at that watch size, at that price point, uh, the build quality, uh, the dial construction across a multitude of brands. I mean, we've we've obsessive, way off obsessive. I mean, it's it's it, it, it's taken up a massive amount of our time. And what we've learned an awful lot through this whole process, where we have to be really careful, is is being influenced by. Uh, what's gone before, what other brands are doing. Because if we are not careful, we will lose that brand DNA that we've fought so hard to establish. Uh, and whilst we are very aware of the commercial aspect of, of the business uh, and uh, obviously our, our customer base, we uh, it's very important to us that, that we don't become a Me Too brand. Um, I do this kind of slideshow uh, as I've mentioned before, and I take uh, the best way to describe is, is I take a cheaper brand, uh, three watches from different cheap brands or lower price point, let's put it that way, and three very high or reasonably high price points. Uh, and what I do is I photo retouch the logos and I swap them. So basically the, the lower price point watches have the expensive brands on and the obviously the higher price points have the lower price point brands. And, um, you know, there's a mixture of audience people when I'm talking to people, but the main premise of this exercise is to talk about case designs and generic aspects to watches, uh, which definitely has its place within the industry. I totally understand that. It's a massive market. But it's really to highlight the importance of having a unique case design. Uh, and a good example that I then roll on to is Panerai. Uh, we're big fans of Panerai, uh, the unique case design, the crystals, the dial design, and it was very important when we set up, you know, it was, it was that we would, that that's something that we would want to follow. Uh, and I think uh, one of our watches, which shows that off really well, is the bullhead watch that we do. As far as I'm aware, we're the only British brand that make a bullhead. So the uh, it's a stopwatch uh, a chronograph uh, with a cradle, and it, it's uh, 44 mil, and it is beautifully engineered. Uh, it's got an exhibition back, but we're only making 50 of those. So we're not mass market. So you know, a lot of our customers are looking for a piece of beautifully engineered horology uh, and uh, a unique piece that's, that, that is really rare. And often our customers are those that have never bought or spent our sort of, sort of price point before, or they're, they're customers who have got a Speedy, they've got a Rolex, and they're just looking for something unique that makes them feel special. So that brand identity and not watering that down is a conversation we have constantly. Uh, and everything that we design, we go back to those original principles and say, is it is it still a zero west? Yeah. Are those things that we set out from the beginning? And so they have it's a really that's a really good question, Rob. And it's it's something we we're constantly analysing and and talking through with everything that we put out. I really like the slideshow. So it's a really great way to get people to focus on exactly what they're buying rather than maybe who in terms of a maker whose name has perhaps more appeal than the cases themselves. The key thing for me when it comes to case design, and you mentioned Panerai as a great example, is case silhouette. Now, that's uh, a difficult thing to boss or to master or to own in the industry. The idea that your silhouette itself is so noticeable, your brand can be identified without any case embellishments, any finishes, any colors, any logos, anything whatsoever. Now, Panerai were probably the most visible, maybe not commercially, 
until the latter part of the 20th century, but the most commercial cushion-shaped case of the 20th century, at least the latter part. And they kind of own that shape in the minds of people. The Royal Oak has got a very identifiable shape when you black out everything else, as does the Nautilus, as does perhaps even a Speedmaster, although you could argue that a Speedmaster would lose something because it's just a lyre-load case. When you take your case, and I know you've got more than one, but let's say the, the classic one that has like the sort of riding lugs, as I, as I call them, on either side, and you black out all of the elements and the finishes to the bezel and the steps within the case, you have something that is, I still think, unlike anything else, but you appreciate more then when you look at it without any of the other things that go into making it a zero S case, how difficult it is to command a silhouette of your own. Do you think that in time you might want to sort of design backwards from your silhouette to not lose the DNA of the watch, obviously, but to create a, a more bare bones version of your watch? Because a lot of them are quite complex. Let's face it. Like if if we look at something like the S4 P9 427 1940, the bezel decoration or the the recesses drilled into the bezel is something that wouldn't show up on a silhouette but is very integral to the character of the watch and in fact i think the reason why i'm asking this question is because my favorite watch of yours was perhaps one of the simplest you ever made it's sold out now but it didn't have any extraneous case embellishments it was the the case middle and those lugs and i thought okay now that that's a watch that i can see as a foundational piece within a brand i don't see any pieces like it in the collection right now but is it something that you might revisit in the future for those reasons Yes, uh, totally. We've actually got that said watch on display in the studio. Uh, and only last week we were having a conversation uh, about building uh, a range off that. Um, it, it, it's, it's hip. When people come into the studio, they, they kind of point it out because it's, it's not something that actually shows on the website. And it was something that we produced early on. Myself and Graham often talk about what makes uh, a Zero West watch a Zero West watch. And 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 a great example of that is the description you've talked about with silhouettes. Um, the, I've got drawings. I, I, some of them are on the wall. Or we've got like a, a mood board, uh, which is all magnetized up. And one of the staple prints, printouts that's on there constantly is the silhouettes uh, of our different case designs for the very reasons that you've just said. And often we talk about what can we add or what can, or more importantly, what, what can we take away, but it still retain, still be, you know, have the DNA uh, of a zero west watch and there are some there are some key elements to do with the lugs uh we've got some further design lug designs uh for moving the brand on uh and uh a, you know fine tweaks to the to the case design uh that will be introduced next year uh, and the year after uh, as a brand we're working on a, a rolling two-year design process um it's very difficult to, to say when some of that's actually going to come out um we were working on a rubber rubber strap for a, a couple of years and we've also been ongoing with a really cool deployment system, uh, which we've got 3D models of here that we've, we've been, you know, fine tweaking. But we're just kind of slotting it, slotting all that design work in around the every day to day. Occasionally, we'll take three or four days out at a time to concentrate on something that we need to get into prototype stage. So it's all massively exciting. But it, again, a really good point raised with the DNA of what makes a Zero West a Zero West watch. Uh, and there's... Um, definitely some plans to move the brand on in an exciting way over the next 12 to 24 months oh that's very good to hear i think taking things away is the the real skill of high level design and leaving yourself with uh, that that purity of vision is is always the goal however difficult it may be and the temptation to throw the kitchen sink at design to differentiate it from everything around it is not always the way to go especially not long term now you're obviously a man very keyed into the concepts of brand building and i'm sure and i can see this really from the products and from the studio itself you have controlled everything you can control so occasionally i work with brands in brand development and i say look there's only so much we can do it doesn't matter how many years experience you have it doesn't even matter how much money you have although the more you have the easier life becomes in many ways but you can only control what you can control and the first thing to do in my opinion is to make a good product like to create something people are going to want to wear create an ambassador on the wrist that turns everyone that buys your products into tireless advocates for your brand because marketing branding money can get you your first sale but only the watch can get you 
the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth. Now, you've built the good product. You have an incredible studio that I want to talk about a little bit more in a moment. You've done pretty well getting representation out there in the press. I think maybe you could have more visibility in the mainstream media platforms. We'll talk about that as well in a moment. But the one thing you can't control is luck. And every brand, doesn't matter how big or small they are, needs luck. And sometimes that can be finding the right ambassadors, I mean, real genuine ambassadors early on, like journalists that see your watch and fall in love with it. Or it can just be hitting the market at the right time. And we've just experienced one of the craziest periods in watchmaking with COVID doing what it did to the secondary market and having a knock-on effect to new brands that were launching their products at that time, selling hand over fist because people were buying everything they could lay their hands on, especially if it was limited. And now we've exited it and we've seen the secondary market collapse. We've seen confidence drop to levels. I don't know I've seen it at since 2008, maybe. That's the last time I can remember people being so cagey about what they did with their money in regards to buying watches. Do you feel that you've had luck as a brand or do you feel like you've suffered as a result of bad luck? I think we've definitely benefited from luck. I think you have to make some of that or put yourself in the right places for that to happen. We've been really, really fortunate to have been in a few of the right places at the right time. I hate to talk about it in this way because I know it affected so many people, but COVID was good for our brand. I still really struggle to say that, but it it, it was true. Uh, A lot of things came out of that. And one of those was the studio, which we'll we'll come on to that. But yeah, um, there's no doubt that the market's a different place now than it was two or three years ago. (laughs) Um, Things are changing, but we're just aware of that and not naive to the fact that the marketplace is a different landscape. and has that changed what we're doing? Yes and no. It, it, it's, it has changed some of when and where we launch things, uh, but the drive is just as high, if not higher than before. And we are basically just trying to ride the fortunate wave of the following that we have and um, just stay positive and fortunate for the customer base that we have and the new people that we're meeting but you, you're quite right uh, there was a time before where people were it was a less considered purchase uh, whereas now it's I would say it's definitely more of a considered purchase you're also in possibly the worst price point to be in right now and uh, maybe you're not feeling it as much as a lot of brands are I don't know you can you can tell us if you feel like telling us if you are or not but honestly between Fifteen hundred and say six thousand, it is an absolute dogfight, and so many of the major brands produce watches within that price bracket, such as Tudor and Omega, Longines, for example. People below that price point, five hundred to fifteen hundred, they seem to be having a field day right now. They seem to be the brands that are surviving and thriving post COVID. Guys above that, ten k, also totally different customer base, totally different volume consideration. They seem to be okay, but right now I've noticed that fifteen hundred to six thousand, maybe a little higher, maybe seven thousand. That is extremely tough sledding. So, have you noticed in the last, let's just say, twelve months, a dip in sales or interest that you can attribute to this recent downturn in confidence? Yes, uh, yes, I can. Well, within the UK, uh, we're fortunate enough that um, that uh, some of our sales or a high percentage go to the states. Uh, so what we've noticed is uh, the States is growing for us as as a market outside the UK, uh, whereas the UK has maybe dipped slightly or stabled depending uh, certain times of the year and when we've released a model. Um, it, it's, it's definitely model related or when we bring out new models related uh, as a business. Uh, we're very attuned to uh, the spikes in marketing, sales, interest, uh, revolves predominantly around new model releases um there's there's an underlying you know new people finding out about the brand uh, who have never heard of us before uh, that seems to be like a constant but um yeah it's 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 an interesting dynamics at the moment and um you know i don't think it's really settled down i think it's 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 still evolving um and we're obviously intrigued and concerned to see what what patterns flow over the next 6 months uh, but what we put in place are exciting new models to release later next year and um, yeah, 
that, that we're just focusing on on the here and now and um the the being designers you're kind of you're more you're so product based rather than uh sales based but um they, they've served us well in the past so uh, we hope to continue on that front it is amazing how much the american market is buoying these new independent brands relatively young brands that would expect maybe to find more favor in their home nations, but finding that the American collector's community is certainly big enough and diverse enough and moneyed enough to take risks on smaller brands and to support new endeavors. It's great to see, although maybe it's not a surprise considering the American economy is actually doing pretty well. We're recording this in early December, although it won't go out until early 2024. And right now, I believe that... um, the American economy is like up seven percent this this year. It's one of the few booming Western economies at the moment. So, whatever people say about Biden, he's certainly done something for the uh, for the confidence in that economy. So, let's talk about your home base. Let's talk about your studio in Emsworth. Am I correct? Correct. Yeah, uh, in between Chichester and Portsmouth on the south coast, uh, we're in an old boathouse uh, overlooking the water. Uh, it is uh, we're very very fortunate to uh, have this uh, old building which we work out of uh, when we took it over we didn't realize that um, it had some automotive history back in the day or just after the second world war there was a famous paneling expert called George Gray and a lot of the um, single seater cars from Goodwood and uh, uh, surrounding areas would come here to be repaired and the first van wall single seater spot body work was all was all built here uh, and also he was uh, because he was so renowned for his body work he worked on the slug uh, which was the sunbeam lamb speed record also the campbell's bluebird and golden arrow and they were all restored in emsworth because of his notoriety prior to going to beauty where they're on display today so we've uncovered a lot of this from people walking past and uh, coming in with boxes of old black and white photos from back in the day. And we've got a really nice history board up in the studio uh, outlining the kind of automotive history that this old building has. But um, one of the things that makes this building really, really special is what we've done to it over the last couple of years. And during COVID, uh, as I said, we were fortunate enough to sell a volume of watches to customers who who said, don't send them out. When we get out of lockdown, we're going to we're going to come down and see you. It'd be like a road trip. And I think the first two people that came down came down from Manchester. Uh, I think it was like seven hours it took them to get here. Uh, and this kind of followed on over the following few months uh, across the summer. People would travel. You know, we had a, an event recently and two brothers came down from Newcastle, um, picked up a watch, stayed over the night and then went home the next day. And what happened was... The, the studio was was a really nice studio before. It was all kind of white floorboards, white walls. But um, it didn't need to necessarily represent the website or or the brand because nobody really came here. And we thought, what would it look like uh, if the website was bricks and mortar? So during COVID, it even sounds strange to say this today, that nobody could visit it. So we thought we could completely do a number on the studio. Uh, and over one Christmas coming up to three years ago now, Graham 3D rendered, measured out and 3D rendered the whole interior. Uh, so you could walk around it, spin it round. Um, we've got these beautiful display cabinets. Um, we've got these amazing uh, tables all made out of roll steel joists. And that was one of our watch watch customers who, make, who made those for us. But I think the pinnacle of what we have in the studio is we've got a Mark 9 Spitfire engine that was downed in northern France. Uh, I, Rob, I've got to tell you this story. This is a great story. And I didn't believe it at first. So we get a phone call from one of our watch customers and he goes, oh, you know, I've got a friend, he's a farmer in the new forest and he's restoring a Spitfire. Do you want to go and look at it? And I just thought, well, this can't be a proper story, but it'll make for a a great tale. So I'll go and see him and I turn up and there's this farmer is, you know, his house. He's got a little Jack Russell. He's wearing Wellingtons. He's wearing like a straw hat that's kind of been eaten on one side. I thought, this is not, this is, this just is not real, but hey ho. And he goes, yeah, do you want to see the Spitfire? And I said, yeah. So we walk up this small hill and on this hill is silhouetted this big barn. And outside it is a Land Rover Defender with one wheel missing. There's a sofa outside with a chicken nesting on it. And I, I just, you know, in my head, I'm just shaking like, you know, this is not, not, not going to pan out how I thought. Lo and behold, he, he swings open the door. I won't tell you what I said because it's, you know, we're on the air. And there is a there is a full size Spitfire in there with the wings off. There's a guy in there with all the green overalls with all the embroidered badges, and they are they are restoring this Mark Nine Spitfire. And he's got like a 
a storeroom there with all the dials, spare canopies, the whole lot. And I was just, I had to phone Graham and I said, Graham, you need to, you need to, you need to get over here. You need to come back tomorrow. And we went there and we took loads of photos and, and it's now that, that Spitfire actually has left there and it's a big and hill, MA764. It's almost finished being restored. It's, it's behind because of COVID. It takes years to restore it. And, and, and for it to be airworthy, it has to be finished being restored in a, in an accredited facility. And, um, there was in the corner was this, there was the kind of all these kind of scraps of metal and I was lifting them off because I was looking for stuff to photograph. And it was an old Merlin engine from the plane. It was, it was in pretty bad shape, but still looked amazing. And I, I said to him, Oh, what are you, do, what are you, what are you doing with that? And he goes, Oh, unfortunately it was, it was too far gone to restore. Uh, and I and I jokingly said, Oh, that would look great in our design studio. And he goes, well, you, you can, you can have it for it if you want. He said, it's only going to sit here in the barn. Uh, and I said, really? He goes, yeah, yeah. But he said, uh, but you you need to pick it up. And at that point, I was like, oh, you know, I'd do anything. Yeah, that'd be fine. And then I realized what what uh, how difficult that was going to be. Uh, so uh, we um, the guy that made all our roll steel, steel joist tables has, has got a big lorry with a crane on the back. And effectively, we had to go to the uh, go to his barn a week later. He and the, and the farmer got his forklift truck and lowered it onto the back of the lorry. And we managed managed to get it back to the studio, which was the kind of easy bit. And then it took five of us. Um, it was on some on some wheels. We put it onto a trolley. It took five of us, pretty much the whole day, to get it through the door, which we got stuck in the doorway, uh, which was a nightmare. And we'd just done the floor, so we had had to board up board it up the whole floor of the studio. And we had to hire two mobile cranes, the sort of cranes you see at a car garage with the chains. Uh, and we put a roll steel joist across the table, high up, with some chains on, with these two mobile cranes, and we hoisted it into position. And uh, all the guys were like really excited because we promised them some beers at the local pub and they were all ready to go. And then I looked at it with Graham and he looked at me and he raised an eyebrow and we thought, well, it's not straight. And everyone's going, yeah, it's straight. No, look, it's straight. It's straight. And we we're going, no, no, we've got to live with this. So we spent another hour and a half, much to their disgust, getting it just right. I think the thing is when you're into watches or you're into design, it's only got to be slightly not straight. And it's something you just can't live with. You'll always notice it and it will bug you forever. So anyway, we've now got this table, this kind of boardroom table with this Mark 9 Spitfire with this beautiful glass all around it, all lit up with LED lights. And when people come, it's a great centerpiece. And we know the full history of, of this watch, and it will form a story for one of our watches in the future. Uh, and and we've got, we work with a historical illustrator that's th- kind of 3D rendered and illustrated the plane as it would have been. And it, it's exciting to see the plane going to be flying next year. So that's just a great example of one of the many historical things that we've got in our design studio that connects to the watches and everything that we're passionate about. So, you know, we don't have a vast range of watches and that's never the plan for Zero West. But when people spend the time, you know, often two or three hours to come and see us, we're not like a normal shop. They, you know, we never, it's a never an in and out process. Uh, and for us, word of mouth and that whole experience is massively important to us. And it's, and it's served us well. And, and maybe that's why so many of our customers are repeat repeat customers well if passion is what you value above all else in a watch brand just listen to that story because i think we can all hear the childlike wonder in your voice of seeing that spitfire hidden in that barn guarded by a chicken on a threadbare sofa in the middle of hampshire sounds amazing uh to me i i would also be enthralled by such a scene and what a beautiful centerpiece it is in the studio and for goodness sake if you're ever down on the south coast then pop along i mean maybe let them know you're coming first but it's a wonderful wonderful place to go and to see some watches and to really dive into the the real history of the brand and its values it's brilliant stuff it looks it looks like a stunning space you've done a wonderful job there and i mean if that's if that's one of those things that you can control when it comes to the branding of zero west then you've done a stunning job there but this is maybe a not so much personal, but professionally invasive question. How on earth did you afford such a studio? I mean, where does your investment come from? Is it private money that you and Graham have put into the company? Do you make enough money from the watch sales themselves to to support something like this? Or do you have external investment as well? No, it, that's, a, that's, again, great question. We, 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 um, we funded it ourselves. And uh, we started in 2016. There's a great story here. So we, we, we started in 2016. And the first three years were a massively exciting, incredible amount of hard work and uh, uh, and threadbare 
So, you, you know, all the money that we invested, there was nothing else coming in. Um, we were spending more and more time as I, 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 you know, very quickly did less and less of my own freelance work. And I was spending nearly all my time pretty much for three years. And I remember my wife gave me a bit of an ultimatum, uh, you know, you, you know, things need to, you know, you need to, we need to start selling stuff. And luckily we were at that point. And, um, I had a friend that who, who runs a design agency up in London and I, I'd only meet him once a year for a coffee and, um, we'd meet up uh, every year. And I remember the first year, oh, I'm, you know, I was just <laughs> setting up a watch brand with my friend following year. Oh, you know, here are some drawings, third year, some prototypes, uh, some one-offs. And in the fourth year, I, I remember he said, oh, you know, do you want to bring some watches up so I can have a look? And um, he wasn't really into watches, but um, he, he had been on the journey and he'd heard everything that we'd been going through, uh, which I'll, I'll come on to in a minute, some of the real difficulties that we had as a brand. And um, he, he, he bought, oh, wait, he bought two, uh, two watches because what we did that was very unusual, uh, well, I believe it's unusual, is we launched with six watches. We launched and we we launched with a bullhead. We launched with a chronograph, and we we launched with several three handers, all different stories. Uh, and that was a massive, massive amount of work. I mean, looking back, maybe we were being too ambitious. Ambitious, but what was really important for us was that we didn't just launch with one watch, see how it went, brought out different variations of it, and and grew it that way. We wanted to kind of hit the ground running, as it were, uh, with a brand, be a bona fide brand, because having a lot of experience with branding from and going to art college and everything else that i'd learned it, uh, you, it was really important that if you didn't know about us uh not only do you see the quality of the product but you can see the vision of the brand uh and martin who, who obviously bought into that and had experience in in that uh really enjoyed the journey so much that um it really reinforced the early days that we were creating something that people would connect with and so he he bought two watches and within a week he another week he'd bought another two watches uh which he's a bit smug about because they're all like number ones we serialize all our all our watches uh, and there's always a, a fight for the first one number one which is uh, always difficult for us to manage when we've got so many good customers uh they're all they're all good customers regardless of how many watches they buy but that's uh, one of the, our little difficulties in life um but um yeah it was um it was it was three years out, and one of the one of those struggles was with the logo i remember um, when we designed a logo, you have to uh, upload that online, and you have to wait three months for it to be for anybody in industry to object to it. And um, <laughs> I remember on the last day of the three months, uh, of course, we're like kids; we couldn't wait. We'd already made some stuff with the logo on. We got some sample dials, and uh, we were building prototypes. We were, you know, what could go wrong? And on the last day of the three months, the postman turns up and goes, "Can you sign here?" And we're like, literally fist pumping the air, going, "Going great! It's all signed off. Let's go." And um, I can't say who they are, or it's probably wise that I don't, but um, somebody significant within the watch industry had objected uh, to our logo. Uh, not on the grounds that it looked identical, but just uh, the shape that it formed was, um, they deemed it a confusion in the marketplace. And it was a bit of a, it was a big blow because uh, it meant that we would have to redesign the logo and we would have to wait another three months. So that's six months just to get the, and that's if it got approved. So we took some advice from some trademark lawyers. I was very fortunate to meet, uh, talk to a trademark lawyer that just got back from a holiday. So they were a bit chilled out and uh, gave me lots of free advice. And um, we redesigned the logo for the better. And uh, we submitted it. Uh, this is the short story, Rob. And uh, we resubmitted it and uh, we had to wait another three months. And on the last day of the three months, the same postman, same postman turns up. Can you sign here? But luckily, it was all good. It was all good. Uh, we drank a few beers that night because the, the logo was massively important to me uh, personally. It was to Graham, but especially to me personally because that's really my background and everything. And so uh, for me, it was really important that we had a, an iconic logo that the the brand was built around uh, and be the foundation for, 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 for the brand. And like you said at the beginning of the podcast, it is a, a zero um, with the, with the reverse wings being Zs that that feed into it, so um, yeah, that, that, the logo has been really popular. We now do t-shirts and and and, and caps and uh, more from a branding and marketing point of view, which have been hugely popular. Um, so you know there were lots of um, uh, you know even though our respective backgrounds really helped us start the brand, there were, we had massive um, 
massive struggles in the early days. And we still have struggles now. The highs are really high and the lows are really low. And sometimes what's really hard is that your professional, there's a commercial aspect to it. So you'll get a prototype back. Uh, 99% of people wouldn't notice the bit that you're not happy with. And it, and it's, and it's still viable as a commercial uh, timepiece to put out. There's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. It's just slightly different to what you wanted. And, and that's what's so hard because myself and Graham who micromanage absolutely everything, even the stuff that we source out, find it really difficult to let anything go, uh, probably to our detriment, but it's just, it's just who we are. Um, yeah. It's just the things that we value uh, and we feel that if it's important to us, it's important to the brand and hopefully uh, the customers that uh, interact with the brand, uh, whether they recognize it or they don't recognize it, there's a, there's, a, there's a worth to that. Talking of things that you value, you mentioned a couple of times the personal stresses that running your own brand can place on a marriage and on other aspects of your personal life. Could you give us, if you don't mind, a candid breakdown of exactly what it's like. Like, when does your day start? When does it end? You don't live too far from the studio, as I understand, so that's something at least. But what what kind of things have you had to sacrifice? Like holidays going out the window, like having to leave family occasions suddenly when there's a crisis at work. You know, just give us a breakdown. Some of those things that you remember that stand out in your mind, and and the real conversations that you had with your wife or with your friends or something like that, that that shows us what it's like, you know, what kind of burden it places upon you as a, as a man. Uh, all of the above. Uh, I think what's so hard is that you can be, so a really good example. When we, when we started the brand or just as we were starting the brand, um, I called uh, Giles at Schofield. I didn't know him. Uh, he's based down in East Sussex. And, um, he was really gracious with his time. Well, I think we spent an hour on the phone and there were a couple of things that I always indented in my mind. And he said, are you sure you kind of want to go on this journey? Because it will become all consuming, especially if your background is kind of design and you're into detail, it, it, it will take over. And he was, um, he was a hundred, he was a hundred percent right. It, it, it's, um, it's it, it's an obsession. So basically, my day is uh, I will I will get into work about half seven to eight o'clock, um, and I I will work through the whole day. Don't take lunch or anything anything like that. Just walk through, and I work till around six o'clock, and then I'll go home. I'll have dinner, and then I'll probably spend between an hour and two hours in the evening on the laptop, and that will be either talking to customers, especially if they're from abroad or on a different time zone. Uh, it's not unusual to get a phone call and speak to somebody in the States uh, when they work out the time difference. You know, it's massively exciting. Uh, you know, there's nothing worse than when you when you email a brand and you get an auto response that says, we aim to get back to you in the next 48 hours. People have got a lot of choice out there. I'm a watch enthusiast. I'm really enthusiastic. I love talking about the brand. And if, if somebody's taken the time to email me, then I'm not going to look at it and say, well, you know, that can wait till tomorrow or that can wait till I can wait till Monday if it's Friday night and, and I've got the opportunity to reply. I'm not the only one that replies. There's lots of people here that re- reply to emails. But it, it unfortunately, you, when you're living in a, uh, as a watch brand and, and Graham's the same, there is no, there's, the only structure is there's no structure. It's, it's, it's constant. It's 24-7. Like Graham will email me on a Saturday night about an idea he's got or we'll speak on a Sunday or I'll be doing the weekly shop and I'll, I'll be putting some stuff on the conveyor belt and I'll look at some packaging and go, yeah, that'd be great for the straps. Um, if I'm doing a podcast or I'm doing a, a, a working with an influencer and they want me on the show or it's, it's, it's late at night or it's, it's a weekend, uh, there's exhibitions, there's, there's a lot of short notice. So for instance, I'll, I'll, I'll get a phone call, uh, or an email or somebody wants to come in on a, a come in, come to the studio, but they can't get here till, they're coming past or they're staying in the area seven o'clock at night. Is there any chance you could stay open or can, you know, can I bring a friend or I, I don't suppose you would do this. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I, if I'm not doing that, not always, doesn't always go down well at home and, and, and you can become very self-centered um, uh, and, and very selfish is probably the right word. Um, but when you're so passionate about it and you've got other people that are, passionate you know like when we when some we've built a watch for somebody and you call them up 
they're so excited. It's not like you're calling up from a double double glazing company to let them know their windows are ready. They will. They will like. We have people taking days off work. Uh, it's massively important, and so it it, it does. Bec- it's become all consuming, and I, I'm not. I'm sure there are areas of my life that that's not a good thing. But it's. I don't really know any different, and it's. And Graham's the same, and it's the only way that that we can be, and it's trying to manage that. Um, yeah, it's 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 it's, and you feel that you have to be like that when you've got so many things that you want to do because not only are you designing the product, you're you're making that product. And then you're marketing that product, and then you're customer servicing that product. You're, do, you're kind of doing everything, or you or you feel responsible for everything, even if other people are working with you uh, to achieve an end goal. Um, and it, and there are things that are massively, massively important to us, and that is the integrity of the company. And that somebody, I'd rather somebody went away from the studio and had the best time and didn't buy a watch, because you know. I would hate to think I was being. I would hate for somebody to buy a watch they didn't want to buy or felt they were being sold to. Oh, that would just. I just. You know, we've all had that experience when you go into a shop and you can feel the sales guy looming looming in on you. It's just not like that at all here. Uh, yeah, it's it's great. I mean, an example was the other day we had a family that live locally. They were all they all chipped in to buy the, their their father a sixtieth birthday present, and she said to me, "Is there any chance you could kind of open late on a Saturday?" Or maybe a Sunday, and I said, "Well, look, I live in the next road." She goes, "What?" I said, "What would be your ideal?" She goes, "Sunday." So I said, "Look," she told me she wanted a cake. So I said, "Why don't you bring the cake in on Saturday? I'll put it in the kitchen. Why don't Sunday you walk past? I'll have the blinds drawn, and then you can go for your little walk, like like you're going to tell him, and then you knock on the windows, and I'll pull the blinds back, and I'll have all the all the kind of teacups ready with the cake, and and we did that." And, you know, that's not something you advertise that you do, but you're just trying to make something special. And he was like, the dad was like welling up when, you know, we'd already wrapped up the watch for him. And um, you just do what you do when you can, you know, I'm not saying I could do that every week, but, um, you know, I appreciate that people have choices out there. Uh, and, you know, you just want to make things as special as possible. Well, there you go. That's how you sell a watch. And uh, you heard it here first every other week. Not every week, but every other week, of course, Andrew's going to be available for birthday parties and entertainment, get him on the karaoke. What a day to remember that'll be. But you mentioned that you've got other people answering emails for you. Um, how many people work for Zero West these days? We've got four people here full time. Uh, it's important to say that we've there's, there's some really, really important things to mention about what we do that's differently here, possibly to some of the other smaller independent watch brands. Um, first and foremost, we make the leather straps here. Um, Graham, it's really uh, interesting. We we tried to find a, a watch strap maker that would make high quality leather straps to the quality that we wanted in the small quantities that are, that we produce, and that was proving really really difficult. So Graham said, uh, like two years into the brand, three years, he goes, "I'm going to have a go at making a leather strap." And the first one that he made was a bit suspect, but I told him it was the best thing I'd ever seen. Keep going, keep going, and it wasn't long because he's a bit of a perfectionist. Uh, we bought loads of tools, workbench, all the leathers, all the hides, and uh, he perfected it down to an art. We've got these beautiful handmade leather straps. Some of them have got uh, recycled World War II canvas in the rally holes, and it allows us to customize. You know, a lot of customers say, oh, you know, can I, can you make, I've got a larger wrist or a smaller wrist, or can I have this color thread? So we do all of that in-house. And we've also got, uh, we converted uh, in the last six months, the back of the studio into a workshop. So we've now got a, a watchmaker here who builds the watches for us. Uh, he's Rolex accredited. He's really cool. And uh, it's fantastic to actually be able to, all the parts are made somewhere different. This, this is an important fact for, for me to, to, to explain that all the parts we get made, not necessarily in watch facilities, uh, aerospace, all those parts come to us here. We QC them. And then our, our watchmaker in-house builds those watches. Um, usually to order though, we've, we've kind of, now that's in-house, we're kind of building some stock up. Uh, and that's been really important for us uh, to be able to design everything in-house, um, make the leather straps in-house, build the watches in-house. And also a couple of years ago, we because we were getting such a backlog with the leather straps, we uh, designed uh, a vulcanized rubber strap and we got a tooling company locally to make those for us. It was great because I could go down and video them all being uh, machined. And then uh, th- that tooling went to a company in Surrey. Uh, it actually does a lot of work for the MOD. 
uh, and they make our vulcanized rubber straps really high and super comfortable. We've had a lot of customers who wouldn't have necessarily bought a rubber strap who, who are now converts. Uh, and that's been great for the brand. Uh, it's, it's definitely helped with uh, us being able to get watches out the door uh, a little bit to, a little bit quicker to customers. But um, yeah, we're very vertically integrated. We design, uh, like I said, all the watches and we also uh, design, uh, we do all the website in-house as well. And we also do a lot of the photography in-house. So, And then on top of that, we've got a variety of uh, local freelancers to us uh, that we use for some of the women we use for copywriting, uh, uh, historical uh, research. Uh, we've got a local company that does a lot of our engraving. Uh, that was quite a long design process or or procurement process because um, with the engraving, if it's not 100% perfect, it's, uh, it's effectively jewellery. It's not right. So they kind of would cringe at the first uh, intricate designs I used to give them for some watchbacks, um, but they've perfected it down to an art. I mean, for example, a typical watchback will probably take between an hour and a half to two hours, uh, laser engraving, and then it's hand-polished. Uh, and then it has to be hand-polished because of the finite detail on it. Uh, it's quite an art, but they are they are real works of art, uh, our watchbacks with the engraving. Uh, and something that we don't talk about a great deal. Um, there's, there's so much to talk about with our watches. Um, that are often that gets uh, missed. They, we just look at them and say, wow, that's really cool. And, you know, we don't often get the chance to go into all the engineering details of the difficulties in, in doing that. But um, yeah, I'm sure we could do things a lot simpler, but because we micromanage a lot of stuff, it wouldn't, it wouldn't feel, uh, it wouldn't feel some, we wouldn't feel necessarily comfortable with that. Well, I do think that they look amazing and it is something that you could definitely talk about further if you ever desired, if you ever had to bandwidth for it but those straps especially the ones with the canvas and the rally holes are absolutely gorgeous and it's amazing to hear that you make them on site but this leads to my next question what kind of volume of watches are you actually producing because that's a that's quite a burden to produce those straps yourself yeah it is i mean early days we uh originally did leather straps for every watch we sold and that volume because it was becoming hundreds and hundreds we just uh, we're not in the thousands we're in the hundreds uh, and and that's technically where we want to stay we're not looking to be the next Christopher Ward uh, or anything like that. That That's just not what we're about, producing small quantities of high-quality watches that champion a British engineering achievement, mark an important moment in history, and, and, and we make them in really small quantities so that they become collectible. And the leather straps, which we used to produce with all our watches, uh, we now sell them as an upgrade, so to speak, or as an extra strap because they were really delaying how many watches that we could build or send out. So we sell all our watches now on the high-end vulcanized rubber, uh, and a lot of people love that. And then we have other people who who want a vintage leather strap made for their Spitfire watch or their Cafe Racer chronograph. Uh, and it's great because it, it, it adds that extra layer of individual individuality uh, to the purchase and customer service and interaction that we have as a brand that uh, a lot of customers, you know, they, they, they never seem in a rush to, to receive their watch because they don't want the process to end. So, um, there is, you know, uh, as we say, a watch without a story is just a watch. You know, quite often when you buy something that's so personal to you as that how you found out about Zero West, that whole interaction and then the whole experience of either being sent it uh, or, or coming to pick it up um, is something that people seem to want to repeat. So uh, we're very fortunate to be able to facilitate that. And it's something that's really important to us as a brand. I do love those rubber straps and I'm a big fan of rubber straps myself and I think that they work really well with your cases. There's just something about the way that they flow from the lugs and I think they look beautifully made. So I can't wait to try a couple of those on my wrist when we see each other on March the 9th at the uh, British Watch and Clockmakers Alliance event in London where you'll be attending. Before we talk briefly about that event and what people can expect to see from you there, I want to know why you serialize your watches in sequence. I would think maybe for a smaller brand that doesn't communicate exactly how many pieces they make of each or not of every watch, that might hamstring you somewhat. Is there a, a, a thought process? Behind, I mean, I'm sure there's a thought process, but what is the thought process behind that? Oh, so so uh, Rob, so if we produce a model, we will, we will uh, historically do either 50 or 100 of a timepiece and it's serialized one to a hundred. We do a zero, but that's our model. We always keep one watch for ourselves. Um, we used to keep them out the front, but we now keep them out the back because people would come in and go, oh, I really like that one. And then you'd have to regrettably inform them that that was a previous model that sold out. 
So we have a lot of customers who, uh, so they may buy, they may not ask for a serial uh, a number. So for instance, they may end up with number 27. And if they buy another watch, we always make sure that uh, we speak to them and say, well, you had 27 last time. Would you like another 27? And suddenly this becomes a thing. Uh, you know, we have two customers that always buy number 13. So before we actually uh, launch a model, we actually have got a spreadsheet with lots of previous customers who have bought certain serial numbers uh, and they're all, all, all kind of marked off as first refusal. Uh, it is a difficult thing for the brand. I, I, you know, I've seen other brands where I, I, I was at an exhibition and I spoke to them about serial numbers and they were saying, you know, we put on the back of each of our watches, you know, one of 500 and, and it says one of 500 on all of the 500 watches. And, and that's fine. And, 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 you know, we thought, oh, that, 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 would, that would really help us out. But, but the serial numbers have become such a thing for, our, for, for us and our customer base. It's not something we're looking to uh, change anytime soon. And um, it's something that um, seems to be um, unknown to us when we started uh, a, a thing for some, some customers. So it's something we're continuing, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, of course you're right. It is a thing for some cu- some customers. Do you really believe, and maybe you have personal experience that proves this irrefutably, but do you think that that would be the difference between someone buying a watch and not? Or do you think it just simply adds a- an extra layer of enjoyment to the process and that's why you maintain it? You're right on both accounts. Uh, it, it adds an extra layer. It adds an extra layer of personalization for a customer to know that we've looked out or we've released a watch and, and we've reserved them a number. Uh, if they so choose to to take us up on that model, uh, they they that really helps them connect to the brand and feel part of the journey with the ongoing releases. We have experienced a customer not buying a watch because that serial number had gone. Uh, hardly ever happens. I could probably in the years since we started the brand, possibly three, maybe four, but uh, really uh, hasn't been. Uh, you know. It, it, the, the only downside of doing that is they they often get really excited and go, you know, ah, oh, you know, I, I I've, I'm buying this watch with a bonus, or or I've been left some money. It would really be significant if you had this number, and you of course you want to facilitate that. You can hear the the, the tone in their voice change, and you really want to be. And then you know you have to regrettably tell them that unfortunately that model is gone. But you know we kind of wrap that up with you know, but we're only making. A hundred of these watches, you know, you, you, you're, you're, I don't mean you're fortunate to have one, but how can I explain? And, and, you know, when we look at what we sell abroad, so you'll, you'll take a particular model. And when you look at the percentage that go abroad, you know, I, I often say to customers, you know, you, you, you will be lucky to find somebody who's wearing another Zero S watch, let alone the watch that you're that particular model. You know, it's, it's, it's trying to kind of, you know, I, I'm not sure people often think about that sometimes, but, you know what? What pulls a lot of people to our brand is the, is the uniqueness and the rarity uh, and the collectability. They just really enjoy that. We had somebody last week who came to pick up his seventh watch. Doesn't live local, lives up north, and two years ago he'd never bought a watch in his life. I, mean, I think he said he had one when he was a kid, and he literally came across us by accident uh, through a friend talking about uh, some salvage material that his friend had, had, had put in his kind of man cave. And uh, he came to see us, bought a watch, and then like five months later, bought another watch. And he comes down and stays over with his wife. He makes a whole night of it. And um, yeah, it's just, you know, uh, very different, very different. Actually, actually, I can tell you a story. Uh, I don't want to go off off track, but um, the other day, it was Saturday, and I, I, was, um, I was halfway through a social media post that had taken me ages to kind of create. And, and there was a, an old gentleman at the door, and um, he must have been... You know, difficult to judge, but nearly ninety, and he he was hyperventilating, literally hanging onto the door. And I opened the door and I said, "Are you okay? You know, are you okay?" And he goes, "Oh, I just had a, I've just come off my mobility scooter." And I looked out the front, and there was his mobility scooter, and it was all smashed up on one side. And um, I, I sat him down, and and you know, I made him a cup of tea, and you know, he he calmed down, and he was okay, and you know, and he was there for an hour at least an hour, and he's telling me about old World War Two, and the stories were fascinating, but I got to a stage where I, I thought, well, look, you seem okay now. Uh, you, you tell me that your mobility scooter's okay because you managed to get it outside the studio. And, and, and I was thinking, I really, need to, I really need to get on. And, and I said to him, oh, um, just out of interest, where were you going today? And he goes, oh, I was coming to see you. He said, uh, I did my funeral arrangements last week, and I heard you do Spitfire watches, and I want to leave my son a watch when i pass away 
And I, I was just like, just, it was just so off from what we'd been talking about. And, and I had to get him a, a magnifying glass because his eyesight wasn't great. And I showed him some of the Spitfire watches. Uh, and then he told me that his wallet was outside in the basket on his mobility scooter. And I, I said, are you sure you want to buy this for your son? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he bought it. And I was half expecting his son to come in the, on the Monday or the Tuesday to say, look, there's been a mistake. Uh, and about a week later, his, his son did come in and um, thanked, thanked, thanked us for looking after his dad and uh, that, um, you know, that he'd had this accident. And it was it, we, we chatted for another half an hour and he would tell me some stories about his dad that it was to do with the war that I didn't know. And, you know, there are lots of, we have lots of different scenarios like this that you, for us, it becomes not about the watch. It's about the people that you meet and the stories and the journeys and the experiences and the facilitating as a brand, being able to just give something that people can kind of pass on. And I know it's a cliche thing to say, but we see this a lot and, you know, there are lots of situations when I look at Graham and he looks at me and he, he sometimes we go, you know, it's it's it it's not about the watches. I mean it is about the watches, obviously, because we're obsessed with it. But there's just these stories that 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 are kind of circle them. Not and not just the stories of the watches, but the stories of the people that we meet and how they get to meet us and, and how it connects people and like doing the cake for that family and, you know, hopefully you know that that was about the watch, but it wasn't about the watch that day. That was about bringing that family together and being able to do something t- for their dad, and and you know you have some small part in that, and and it just makes you feel glad that you've been able to create something to be able to do these small things that m- maybe make people feel good stuff. Jesus, I'm nearly tearing up myself. Unbelievable. Um, and I I have a heart of stone, so you've done you've done well there. Um. I would love to end the show on that note, but there is one more thing that we do need to address. We touched on it before, and it's, again, about people, about meeting people and bringing people together, and that is this event upcoming on March the 9th. So maybe you could just give us a quick idea of when you're going to be there, what sort of things you're going to be showing, what people can expect, and why they should come along and meet Zero West in person. Okay, really excited. This is the first show put on by the British Watch and Clock Association on Saturday the 9th of March. In London, massively excited to go to this show. We one of the reasons that it's exciting is because we're going to uh, have three custom special Zero West watches that will only be available for sale on that day in London. They won't be on the website, just there. And these will be custom specials from existing models in the range, but they will be different, very different, and really, really cool. And we can't wait to show these off. So I'm sure, uh, like a lot of the other brands that are making specials uh, for the show, it's going to have a large draw. I even believe that Roger Smith is doing a watch for the for the event, so it will be, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. So I, I imagine the buzz around the show, uh, and if you haven't got your tickets, I believe, you know, they're, they're, they're obviously they're online, obviously, when this gets posted out, but it's going to be a great, great show. And we're also, uh, we always take great pride in, uh, we get, always go a bit over the top on our stand, and we've got some, We've got we've got a time machine. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. But uh, if you're intrigued now, you'll be super intrigued when you see it. And that's going to be on our stand. And that is really, really, really cool. Been working on it for well since Easter, really. So um, yeah, uh, <laughs> hopefully everyone's as intrigued as uh, we are. But uh, that's going to be on our stand, uh, uh, taking center center stage. Uh, and we're going to have some uh, really cool. That's the trouble when one of your business partners is an engineer. Uh, we get sidetracked on loads of uh, personal projects that we definitely haven't got time for, but they all connect around the brand. Uh, and we have some of them here. For instance, we've got like a, a James Bond briefcase, and we re-engineered all the gadgets from all the different films uh, in a, in a beautiful uh, vintage Samsonite briefcase. Uh, uh, people keep bending our arms to sell it, but uh, it's great. Uh, we struggled a little bit to take it to shows because obviously it's got a gun in it, uh, but it's all beautifully cut out of the foam. And we've got a rocket here that's a watch winder uh, that's all beautiful stainless steel that all lights up like a Christmas tree, which is great to have on. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll have lots of cool bits like that, which will uh, make our stand well worth a visit. Brilliant stuff. So follow Andrew's example and don't bring your guns along to the British Watch and Clockmakers Alliance yeah, event in March. Definitely not. No guns. 
Um, if you want to get yourself some tickets for this event, you can go to BritishWatchmakers.com. That's B-R-I-T-I-S-H-W-A-T-C-H-M-A-K-E-R-S dot com. And you can sign up to join the Alliance, which is always a good thing to do. When you do sign up, you get yourself a annual subscription to our watch magazine, which is a good way to stay abreast of all developments in the industry, especially those exciting things happening in Britain. Andrew, thank you very much for your time. We overran slightly because I was just so interested in what you were saying. It's been a great episode. I've really enjoyed it. It's a great insight into the brands. And look, I hope that we work together sometime soon on a project. Also, the real-time show is going to be at the event as well. So let's have a chat then. If any of our listeners have questions for Andrew that they want answering, then we can put them to him then. Contact me on Instagram at Rob Nuds, R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S, or my co-host Alan Ben-Joseph at A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H, or via our dedicated Instagram account at therealtime.show. You can contact Alan or I via email as well, either Rob or Alan at therealtime.show, or via the contact form on the website www.therealtime.show. We'll be back soon with more top quality watch content. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking.